Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 13? As we said this evening, Stephen is picking up our series in Mark's gospel. We left off at the end of chapter 12 before Christmas, so we're picking up in chapter 13 tonight. So let's read Mark chapter 13 and verse 1. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Amen. Uh, Would you turn in your Bibles to the portion of Scripture that uh, Callum read to us? Our assistant pastor, James, is preaching through Mark's Gospel, and he had the great goal of reaching the resurrection by Easter, and so he asked myself and Reuben if we would carry on our studies, his studies in uh, Mark, so that that uh, deadline would be reached, and I drew the uh, short straw and was landed with Mark 13. Now, what I want to do this evening is to zoom out and take a bird's-eye view of the text. So, we're going to get into a plane and travel at 36,000 feet over the text uh, to get the big picture uh, of the text. Now, when it comes to Mark 13, we have three basic approaches by commentators. Some think that all of Mark 13 is future that all of it has to be yet fulfilled when the Lord returns in power and great glory. Now, the problem with that view, and it is a big problem, is verse 30, where Jesus says, "'Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things are accomplished.'" And that generation did pass away, and the Lord did not return. And so, some theologians of the 20th century conclude that Jesus was wrong. Albert Schweitzer, who has become a kind of folk hero of some in the church, said that Jesus was mistaken. Oscar Kuhlman, one of the best-known theologians of the 20th century, quite simply says Jesus was wrong. George Beasley Murray, an evangelical Baptist, said after many wrestlings and doubts and torment of soul that he came to the conclusion that Jesus was wrong. Now, such a position we must reject completely, for to say that Jesus was wrong on this matter is not simply to cast doubt on the veracity and the integrity of Jesus, but also on the deity of Jesus uh, itself. We must take Jesus at His word and conclude that the generation of the disciples did not pass away until the predictions were fulfilled. That's the first view of the passage, that all of these words describe events around the second coming of Christ. Secondly, there are those who believe that the events right up to verse 31 describe events leading up to A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. And to be sure, much of the material does describe those events. The text has a 
a local feel and flavor. Verse 14, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. This is localized in the parallel passage in Luke 21. Jesus says in verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now, the trouble with that view is that it's quite obvious in the text that Jesus does refer to His glorious second coming in verse 26, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. It's hard to fit that statement, although some try to do that, into the events surrounding A.D. 70. So, these two views that Mark 13 describes only events around the second coming of the Lord, or that Mark 13 describes events only leading up to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 have their own distinctive problems. But there is another view, and it is my view, that in fact Mark 13 has, and the parallel passages in Luke 21 and Matthew 24, have in fact two horizons. One for sure is A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple, and the other is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the difficulty is knowing where in the passage he's speaking of A.D. 70 and the events that surrounded the fall of Jerusalem and where he is speaking of his glorious return. That's the point of disagreement, and I'm sure, I'm pretty sure not everybody's going to agree with me tonight. But what we're going to try and do from this perspective of 36,000 feet flying over the text, we're going to try and get a bigger perspective on what Jesus says. You'll notice the chapter begins with Jesus leaving the temple area as He makes His way to the Mount of Olives where He sits down and speaks to the disciples. And so, what we have here is known as the Olivet Discourse. As He is passing through the temple, one of the disciples says to him in verse 1, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, the temple was a magnificent place. It was an astounding piece of architecture. It was the size of three football fields. It dominated the topography of Jerusalem and could be seen by everyone who approached the city. It was surrounded by huge pillars of white marble, and the nine doors that give entrance to the temple were gold-plated. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that no sooner had the sun risen than you had to cover your eyes because of the reflection that came from the sun's rays on the temple. Some of the stones were 67 feet in length and nine feet wide, the size of a railway carriage just baffles our imagination to think how they maneuvered those stones into place without modern engineering equipment. It had been rebuilt by Herod the Great, who began the project in 20 BC and was only completed in AD 67, three years before its destruction. So, it was still under construction when Jesus spoke. And as Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple, He makes this remarkable statement in verse 2, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one stone left upon another. All will be thrown down. Now, with the disciples, you could have heard a 
pin drop. That would have been devastating information. The temple wasn't just the centerpiece of Jerusalem. It was central to the minds, to the culture, to the religion, to the affections, to the life of the nation. It was synonymous with what it meant to be a Jew. And Jesus says, this temple, it's all coming down. No stone will be left on another. And that's what happened in AD 70. This magnificent building was totally destroyed, and no stone was left on another. Josephus, again, the Jewish uh, historian, tells us that so complete was the destruction that you wouldn't even have known a temple was there in the first place. And you may say to me, well, I've been to Jerusalem, and I have seen the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, and those uh, sections, one stone on top of another, but that was Solomon's temple. That wasn't the, the temple of Herod, and they had to uh, dig deep down to excavate Solomon's temple. Herod's temple was built on top of that. Now, Jesus passed through, and He prophesied that all of this will be destroyed. The disciples were understandably shocked, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, two sets of brothers. And when they sit down in the Mount of Olives opposite, they ask Jesus about this prophecy. Verse 4, tell us when all these things will be, and what will be a sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. Now, in fact, as we will see, there are two questions there, but in the disciples' minds, those questions were joined together. One would give way to the other. It's clearer in Matthew's gospel when they say, tell us when these things will be and what will be a sign of your coming at the end of the age. So, Jesus describes the signs of the coming. He describes the event, and He issues a warning. We're going to change the order of that slightly, and we're first of all going to look at the event, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 18. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Describing the same event in Luke 21, Jesus says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its destruction, its desolation has come near. There will be nothing like this, says Jesus, since the creation of the world. And that's exactly what happened. In A.D. 66, the Jews staged a rebellion against Rome. Vespian was sent to squash it. He was called back to Rome as, uh, as the emperor, and his son Titus Justus was left to put the rebellion down. And he led siege to the city of Jerusalem. There was enough food. Jerusalem is like an impregnable fortress, but there was enough food for Jerusalem to hold out for several years. But such were the factions and the fighting among the Jews that they ended up eating their babies, according to Josephus. They could have held out for years, but in fact the siege lasted four months, three weeks, and four days. 
And verse 20 says, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved for the sake of the elect whom he chose. He shortened the days. Titus himself understood it in that way. He said, We certainly had God as our assistant in this war. It was no other than God who ejected the Jews from Jerusalem. An extraordinary statement coming from an unconverted man. And when the city fell, Josephus tells us that Titus crucified 1.1 million Jews running out of trees for crosses and iron for nails. He crucified a Jew all the way from Jerusalem to Rome at one-mile intervals. Notice the phrase there in verse 14, but when you see the abomination that causes desolation where he ought not to be, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, that phrase, an abomination that causes desolation, is a phrase that's picked up from the book of Daniel, and Daniel is prophesying about a Seleucid ruler who would come, known as Antiochus Epiphanes, and so the Greek empire divided into two. You had the Ptolemies in Egypt, and you had the Seleucids then in Syria. And this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, came. They had sieged to the city. He went into the temple, erected an altar to Zeus, and then burnt pig flesh on the altar, an abomination that caused desolation prophesied by Daniel, it was as much in the psyche of New Testament Jews as 1066 is in England or 1690 is in Ulster. Now, Jesus says there will be another abomination that causes desolation, where the temple, through some act of blasphemy and abomination, will be rendered desolate. And we know that this Roman general, Titus Justus, brought insignias of the uh, Roman soldiers actually into the temple, which included effigies of the emperors, and then he burnt pig flesh on the altar, causing another abomination that causes desolation. Then he tumbled the temple, he destroyed Jerusalem, and crucified the Jews. This was the terrible event that Jesus spoke of. There was never anything like it before. To quote Josephus again, neither did any other city suffer such miseries as Jerusalem did in those days. That's the event, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Notice, secondly, the signs that would be given that this is about to happen. From verses 6 to 13, Jesus gives a number of signs that would lead up to those terrible events in A.D. 70. He speaks in verse 6 of false prophets. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Verse 22, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you these things beforehand. And there were false Christs and false prophets that arose. The first one is mentioned in Acts 8. His name is Simon Magnus or Simon the Magician. He did astonishing miracles, and then he claimed to be a Christian but was found to be a counterfeit. So he, at that point, he leaves the pages of the New Testament, but he doesn't leave the pages of history. He continues to work his miracles to great effect, 
Eventually, he goes to Rome uh, and becomes a very famous person. He claims to be Christ. He claims to be God the Father, and he claims to be God the Holy Spirit. And thousands of people believe in him because of the, the signs, because of the miracles, and there were many like him. Josephus again says this, the country was filled with these impostors who deluded the multitude. That's the first sign. The second is recorded for us in verse 7. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Now, that phrase has so made its way into the Christian mind and the Christian's full calvary that Christians immediately think of the second coming of Christ, wars and rumors of wars. I hate to disappoint you or burst your bubble, but these are the signs of the fall of Jerusalem. If you think back to Christmas, I said that when the Lord came, it was a time in Roman history known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There was this period of peace throughout the Roman world, but all of that changed in the run-up to A.D. 70. In A.D. 69, four emperors succeeded each other in one year. 20,000 Jews died on the streets of Caesarea. Verse 8, there will be earthquakes in various places, famines. There were 11 earthquakes along the Mediterranean basin, including the earth, great earthquake in Pompeii in February 63. Between A.D. 66 and 85, hurricanes ravished the empire. Famine. Remember the famine we read of in the New Testament, the famine in Jerusalem that Paul sought to alleviate by collecting from the Gentile churches. Verses 9 to 13, persecution. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues and stand before governors. That word governors is a technical word for Roman governors. And that was true. The church faced both Gentile and Jewish persecution. Nero was one of the most vicious of all the Roman uh, emperors. He died on the 9th of June, A.D. 68. You remember how he used to dip Christians in tar and use them as flaming torches to illuminate his garden at night as he took his evening scroll. False Christs and prophets will appear. There will be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famine, bitter, bitter persecution. But Jesus says, do not, verse 7, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 8, these are but the beginning of the birth pangs. Verse 13, keep going, he says, because the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Now, this along with Matthew and Mark, in their parallel accounts, must be some of the most extraordinary chapters in all of the Bible, if not in all of literature, both inspired and uninspired. Because here Jesus predicts and foretells the events of A.D. 70 and the signs that would lead up to that catastrophe. And if you're not a Christian, you must be, you must be impressed by this. And you might say, well, how do we know if these words weren't written after those events? Well, we know that for a fact because the early church took cognizance of them, of what Jesus said. And that brings us to our third point. We have looked at the event, the destruction of the temple, the signs, the indicators that uh, 
would happen. And then the warning. In verses 28 to 31, Jesus gives the lesson from the fig tree. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know, listen carefully, that he is near at the very gates. The gates of what? That he is near at the very gates. Who's the he? Titus Justice. At the very gates. He's near the very gates. Right, go, let's go back to verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is out in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Jesus is warning first-century Christians. And he says, when you see these things happen, don't stay in Jerusalem. Flee to the mountains. When you're on your housetop, don't go down. Remember the architecture of the Middle East, flat roofs where the family would meet and eat in the cool of the evening. And if you're on your rooftop, don't go down. Why? Because in the streets there were religious zealots, Jewish zealots, who threatened to murder people if they fled, if they left the city. Get out of there as fast as you can, says Jesus. Even if you have to flee across the rooftops, don't go back for a cloak if you're out in the field. It's going to be particularly hard for pregnant women and nursing mothers, verse 17, clambering over those rooftops. Now, what a warning. And we know that the early Christians heeded that warning. When they saw the signs, they got out of the city, fleeing over the rooftops, and not one Christian died in the siege of Jerusalem. That horrific massacre where 1.1 million Jews were put to death, not one Christian died. Eusebius of Caesarea tells us that these early Christians took the warning of Jesus. They fled across the Jordan into the area, the region of Decapolis. They took seriously the warning of Jesus and his command to flee. And it's a remarkable story of God's grace provision and protection. So, here we have the fall of Jerusalem, the event, the signs, and the warning. Now, secondly, we need to put on our bifocals, and we need to look from the immediate future to the distant future, from the fall of Jerusalem to the glorious second coming of Christ. Remember that the disciples had so connected the fall of Jerusalem with the last day and his second coming, that they blended those two things into one. Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished, consummated, brought to completion. Clear, as I said in, in Matthew 24, tell us when these things will be what things, the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. Two things that in the disciples' minds were synonymous, but our Lord separates out, that there would be the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 and the accomplishment of all things at the coming of the end of the age. 
And so, in the revelation of the terrible events that surrounded the fall of Jerusalem, Jesus lifts their eyes to His glorious return. Look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. And then He will send out His angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the end of heaven. Now, let's take the same approach as we took with the fall of Jerusalem. Let's look at the event, first of all, then the signs, and then the warning. So, first of all, the event. Here Jesus tells us that He will come judicially in judgment, He will come gloriously, and He will come triumphantly. First of all, He comes judicially. Look at verse 24 and 25. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, this language is borrowed from the Old Testament, and it speaks of judgment. It's the language of catastrophe, of apocalyptic language, extravagant language that speaks of judgment. So, for instance, in Isaiah 13, verses 9 and 10, when the prophet speaks of the judgment of Babylon, we read, "'Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and for its wickedness." So, these signs, these celestial signs speak of judgment. In Ezekiel 32 and verse 7, where judgment is announced against Egypt. We read, "'When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light.'" And it is interesting to me that both in Jewish culture and in pagan culture, that celestial change speaks of judgment. Nero died, committed suicide in the 9th of June, A.D. 68, and one of the reasons he committed suicide was Halley's Comet appeared, and he thought that comet was a revelation against him, a sign of judgment on him. So, all of these things in Mark 13, 24 to 25, speak of the judgment that will take place, that the wrath that will be revealed when Jesus returns. For some, the second coming of Christ will result in great deliverance and reward, but not for all. For some, it will result in destruction and devastation. Do you remember after that parallel passage in Matthew 24? In Matthew 25, Jesus gives the parable of the sheep and the goats, that when the Son of Man comes in glory, He will gather the nations before Him, and He will separate the sheep from the goats, and to the sheep He will place them on His right side, and He'll place the goats on His left-hand side. And then the King will say to those on His right, "'Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world.' And to those on the left He will say, "'Depart from Me, you cursed.'" 
into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And the day of the Lord's return will result in judgment. He will come judicially. He will come gloriously. Look at verse 26 again. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and great glory. Now, when you think of clouds, don't think of the weather and don't think of those fluffy things in the sky. Think biblically. The clouds were symbols of God's presence. So, you remember when the Israelites were led through the wilderness, they were led by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And that pillar of cloud and fire reminded the Israelites of the presence of God, that God was with them. When the tabernacle and the temple were dedicated, a cloud, the cloud, the biblical author says, of awesome glory filled those, the tabernacle and the temple indicating His presence. And in the transfiguration, when the Lord's glory burst through His humanity, a cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, the clouds speak of His deity and His glory. And that's exactly what Jesus says in verse 26, and when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory… When Jesus returns, He will return with all the trappings of royalty, of deity, and of glory. When He came the first time, He came incognito. There were no clouds. There was no power. There was no glory. He came into our world in the normal way and grew up in an ordinary family. There was no halo suspended above His head or light emanating from Him to reveal His true identity. But when He comes again, it will be altogether different. It will be glorious. Matthew tells us in his account it will be visible. He will appear in heaven, and they will see, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. John uh, tells us in Revelation 1 and verse 7, Look, He is coming with the clouds of heaven, and every eye, every eye will see Him, even those who have pierced Him. It's glorious. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, He will come judiciously, He will come gloriously, and He will come triumphantly. Look at verse 27. He will send out His angels and gather His elect from the four winds from the end of the earth to the ends of heaven. God's plan and purpose will be fulfilled. And all those who believe in Jesus will be gathered. Not one of them will be lost. They have been chosen by the Father. They have been redeemed by the Son. And they have been sealed by the Spirit. And not one of them will be lost. The promise of Jesus is fulfilled, that He built His church, and the, even the gates of hell could not stand in the way of the advancement of the church, and all the elect are saved. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The gospel, the gospel triumphs. I remember hearing of an illustration given by John Woodside, who was the Presbyterian minister in, in Drogheda, and he said that he took great delight in watching the England-Ireland rugby match 
and his wife was watching with it, and she was sighing and complaining when Ireland fumbled or fell and when England got the upper hand, but he was quietly confident because it was recorded, and he knew the outcome. Well, we know the outcome, and the outcome is this, the Lamb wins, and that not one of the people of God are lost, but He gathers the elect his elect from the four corners of the world. So, he comes judicially. He comes gloriously. He comes triumphantly. What a glorious day it will be. The event, the signs, what signs will precede and indicate the second coming of Jesus? Now, there are two views on this, and I sort of waver between the two. Some people think that the signs that preceded the fall of Jerusalem, false prophets, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, bitter persecution will again appear and precede the second coming of Christ. And that's certainly a possibility. And Second Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us of the man of lawlessness that will be revealed. But I'm not sure that you can take the signs of Mark 13 and the lead up to the fall of Jerusalem and apply them generally to the second coming of Christ. Look at verse 20 eight again, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know, you know that He is near at the very gates. Go down then to verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So, Jesus says, concerning the fall of Jerusalem, so that you might know, but concerning that great and terrible day of the Lord, no one knows. No one knows. He does give us signs leading up to AD 70, so that you may know, but concerning the second coming, no one knows. Now, we can't go into that mysterious statement in detail that not even the Son of Man knows, not even the Son knows, but only the Father. We can't go into detail in that, but just suffice to say that in the humanity of Jesus, Jesus did not know everything. Now, Thomas Aquinas, the ancient Middle Ages theologian, said that Jesus was actually telling fibs at this point and that he did know as God, uh, but felt it wasn't good for the disciples to know. Well, Jesus did know everything that was necessary in his humanity to execute his redemptive mission, but did he know the lyrics of Bridge Over Troubled Water? Well, I don't think so. Did he know the uh, chemical formula for benzene? which is C6H6. I had to look that up. I don't think so. In his human mind, he had a mind that inquired, a mind that acquired, and a mind that asked questions. Now, he was God of very God, but the date and time of the second coming in his human nature was not information that redemptively he needed to know. Now, if that is true, and I think it is, 
for you to say that you know the time of the second coming is very arrogant indeed, that you know something that Jesus did not know in the days of His flesh. And over the centuries, over the decades, over the months, and even over uh, recent weeks, people who have predicted and proclaimed the time of the second coming have been disappointed as dates have come and gone. The signs mentioned were given before the fall of Jerusalem to warn the Christians of the catastrophe that was to come, that they might know. But there are no signs to indicate His coming again, because no one knows. No one knows the day or the hour. And if anyone does claim to know the day or the hour, one thing's for sure, that He's not coming then. So, the event, the signs, and thirdly, the warning. Look at verse 33 to verse 37. Be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he comes suddenly and find you asleep. And I say to you, all stay awake. Jesus says, since you do not know the time, the day or the hour, be on your guard, keep awake. Jesus is coming again. Of that you can be sure, just as He promised that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and 40 years later it was destroyed. So He promised that He will return, and you can be sure that He will return. We don't know when He will return, but we must be prepared that He will return. Jesus says it's like a master of a house who goes on a, away on a journey, and he puts his servants in charge and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. And you don't know when he will come, uh, in the evening, at midnight, at dawn, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. So, Jesus says, stay awake. Don't be found napping when the master returns. Now, think of the fall of God's judgment on Jerusalem and how the Christians escape by fleeing over the rooftops into the desert. We're told that not one Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem, but 1.1 million Jews died. Why was that? Because they heeded the warning of Jesus. Well, like those early Christians, you have received the warning. Jesus will come again gloriously, triumphantly, but also judicially. He is coming in power and great glory and will rescue His people from the four winds, from the four corners of the earth. But He is also going to judge the world, to judge the living and the dead. And you have received that warning, and you need to flee not into the desert, not beyond the Jordan, but you need to flee to that fountain that is open for sin and uncleanness. You need to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross, where you find forgiveness and cleansing, and you can be ready for that glorious return. I was reading about the hurricane that a number of years ago struck Florida, and the governor of the state 
advised everyone to evacuate, to pull back from the coast, to get out of the way of the hurricane. But a, a group of revelers held a hurricane party right on the beach, a celebration of the, the, the power unleashed in nature. And, and policemen came to, to the very property, to the apartment block where the party was being held and pleaded with those people to flee, to flee, to get out of the way of the impending hurricane. And they laughed at him, and they dismissed them, and, and the hurricane struck, and all 28 people died in that hurricane because they refused to listen to the warning. Jesus says, stay awake, be prepared, flee from the wrath to come. Be like those early Christians in Jerusalem who were given the information by Jesus, the signs of the destruction of the temple, and when they saw the abomination that causes desolation, they immediately got out, and they, they fled, and they were kept safe. And we need to flee, flee to Jesus, the rock, the shelter, the one who can protect us from that terrible unleashing of the wrath of God. Amen.